Hello, welcome to Dying to Talk. I'm Buddy Feneff, a fourth generation funeral director in New Hampshire and the owner of Feneff Funeral Homes and Crematorium and the founder of the Cremation Society of New Hampshire. My co-hosts today are Mandy Damaris and Madison Smith, both longtime funeral directors with our firm. Hello, I'm Mandy. Thanks for joining us on Dying to Talk. Hi, I'm Madison. We're excited to discuss some frequently asked questions about the funeral industry. Dying to Talk is a lighthearted and upbeat discussion of those topics no one really wants to talk about. Each episode, we will choose a subject that is related to funeral service, the cremation process, or death and dying. This week, we have a very interesting guest. Um, we have Kim Fallon. She is with the assistant deputy uh, with the medical examiner's office. And the topic this week is going to be the role of state medical examiners. Um, Kim being an assistant deputy medical examiner, and she also runs the office. We have a, a lot of great questions for her, um, both for myself. I know Mandy and Madison have some good questions, and we've gotten a number of emails and a couple tweets from some of our guests that have some questions about medical examiners as well. So what do you think about our, our topic this week? I think this is a great topic. Um, the medical examiner, the role of the medical examiner is very misunderstood or at least little understood. And um, I think that this can cover a lot of the unusual questions, weird questions that people have um, regarding the part of this process that is really deeply, deeply buried behind the scenes. And a lot of unknowns. There's so many misconceptions right. yeah, about medical examiners and autopsies and how they get involved. I think a lot of people are watching TV and crime shows and they see medical examiners and they think there's special vehicles they go out with and all, it's just it's the reality is is much different than the perception on, on TV. Yeah, so. Not nearly as glamorous as no. uh, NCIS. <laughs> not at all. Law and order and all those. I think what people are going to hear today um, will really lay to rest a lot of those movies and television shows because it's not just homicides that they're involved in. There's so many other instances where they help families lay their loved ones to rest and and um, hopefully solve um, what happened to them. And people don't realize when when medical examiners, I mean, there there is, as we'll talk about, there are situations when the medical examiners um, are involved where even if the family doesn't want them to be involved, there's no choice. It gets involved with medical legal, um, of course, crime scenes, all kinds of issues relative to um, um, to, to, to different um, parts of death and what's happening. And I think Kim's going to um, really enlighten us all. Um, we deal with the medical examiner's office probably multiple times a day. Um, and even still, we're learning things every time we, you know, we call the medical examiner's office on a special case or something going on. It's just, it's just really a fascinating aspect of a funeral service. Yeah, they're definitely an integral part of, of what we do here. Kim, welcome. Good morning. Welcome to Dying to Talk. Good morning. So we, um, we've got quite a few questions for you. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get through all the questions because this is such an interesting topic. But I guess to, to start off, the, the first question maybe, um, so what type of cases do the medical examiner's office get involved with as a general, general overview? So it's the law that gives us the legal authority to investigate certain deaths, and it's anything that's uh, not a natural death is automatically a medical examiner case. So that's accidents, suicides, and homicides. And then we also do a fair amount of natural deaths because either until you investigate or until there's an autopsy, you don't know it's a natural death, or the person might not have a doctor, or they have a doctor that's out of state. And out of state doctors can sign death certificates, but it's just too impractical when they're pretty far out of state. 
So um, those are the kinds of cases that we get involved with. Prisoners as well, would that be included? Yeah, or? anybody, the law says anybody that dies in legal custody. Uh, so we automatically look into those cases also. So about how many of that meet your parameters a year? How many cases is a medical? Uh, probably around 1,500 or so. 1,500, that's mm -hmm. quite a bit. Yep. How many um, how many people are on staff over at the medical uh, So we have four full-time people working in the office. It's our two doctors, the secretary, and me. We have a part-time evidence technician, and then our uh, scene investigators are independent contractors. Our doctors are both board-certified forensic pathologists. Our chief is Dr. Tom Andrew, and our deputy chief is Jenny Duval, and they're both trained um, as forensic pathologists, so they know what to look for in terms of injuries and um, different kinds of uh, evidence on the bodies. Now, Kim, with that many cases per year, are those doctors going out to all the scenes, or do you have additional staff to, to aid around the state? The doctors hardly ever go out to the scenes. They're trained to do autopsies, and our scene investigators, we call them assistant deputy medical examiners, they're the ones that go to the scenes, and they, they talk to the doctors when they're at the scene, whichever doctor is on call, but they are trained uh, to do scene investigations and to look at and examine the bodies and um, you know, to work with the police and other types of law enforcement at the scenes. How many of, of those um, assistant deputy medical examiners are there? We have about 20 around the state. Oh, wow. Okay. So there, there must be a schedule where they have to adhere to to make sure someone's yep, covered every, at all? Yep, we cover every county 24-7. Okay. Uh, we got an email actually from Joseph uh, from Antrim last week, knew you were coming on, and his question is, does every person that goes to the medical examiner's office get an autopsy? No. So probably about one-third of our cases get autopsied. The other two-thirds get what we call an external exam. So the ADME, the assistant deputy medical examiner who's doing that case, looks at the body and goes over it head to toe to make sure that there are no injuries or any unexplained injuries and that everything fits with the story that's being told. And when the body doesn't go for autopsy, when we're doing those external exams, in most cases we also draw uh, toxicology specimens and um, those get sent to uh, a lab, you know, to get the toxicology results. And how long would that, would that does that hold up the death certificate if the family's filing for life insurance or needs it for claims for, for probate court, or how does that Well, all... if we're waiting for those results to determine the cause of death, mm -hmm. then the death certificate's signed as pending, and the manner is pending and cause of death is pending. But the family can make the arrangements that they want with the body, either burial or cremation. It can hold up um, when it's pending uh, the life insurance, as I understand it. We have written letters to life insurance companies to say, you know, that this is not, you know, a homicide or there's nothing suspicious about it. And some um, insurance companies are okay with that, but others, I think it depends on the circumstances and they want to see the cause of death. So how long would take to get the toxicology report? Um, it can take two months or so, sometimes okay. even longer. Uh, we send it, you know, to one of a couple of labs, and it takes quite a while to get the results back. And uh, also, when we get the results back, our doctor has to review it, the toxicology results and the details about the case, and then to determine if anything in those lab results shows that, um, you know, drugs uh, or, you know, other substances caused or contributed to the death. 
Now, Kim, based on the physical evidence and those toxicology results, what happens if the results are inconclusive, that you can't determine a cause of death? How often does that happen? Well, usually you can determine the cause of death. What sometimes is more of a problem is determining the manner of death, and manner is natural, accident, suicide, or homicide. And sometimes for drug deaths, it's hard to tell whether or not the person was, you know, trying to commit suicide or whether they accidentally overdosed. Uh, and in that case, the doctor can put the cause of death as whatever substances were in their system, but the manner of death they might put undetermined for that. Which, again, could impact life insurance if it was accidental or homicide or... Correct. Okay. So you're saying that um, you wouldn't necessarily autopsy every case that's referred to the medical examiner. Um, what happens if you decline, uh, you know, doing an autopsy and the family of, you know, the person who's passed is adamant that they want an autopsy done? So if it's one of our medical examiner cases, depending on the circumstances, you know, our doctors do take that into consideration. We do get a lot of calls from people where it's a totally natural death and they want an autopsy and we don't even have jurisdiction for that death. I even got a call from a doctor one time. He knew that his patient died of cancer, but he wanted to know where the primary was, uh, the primary site of the cancer was, and I had to explain that's not in our jurisdiction. We do medical legal autopsies. And um, I refer people to their, you know, the decedent's PCP, and hospitals do do autopsies, and uh, many of them have pathology departments, or there are a couple places in New Hampshire that will uh, do do private autopsies. So a, a family cannot hire the medical examiner's office, even for a fee, to do a private autopsy, is that correct? correct? That's correct, yes. Correct. Okay. Any idea what, if the family does want to person dies at a hospital and they have some concerns or a person dies especially at home or and is not a medical examiner, What any idea what a private autopsy price-wise? I mean, we, we've had families I've heard from that they paid from anywhere from a few thousand dollars and upwards of eight or nine thousand dollars. Yeah, I do not know how okay. much that would cost. Now, in the case where a medical examiner is involved, how many days um, does it hold up the funeral arrangement process? How long does it take to do a proper investigation? It usually doesn't hold it up very long at all, if at all. If it's, uh, if a body is found um, and it's a non-natural death, the ADME will go to the scene and do the scene investigation along with the police. And then if there is an autopsy, uh, it's usually scheduled for the next day. And right after autopsy, the body is in most cases, released. So let's say you, you've, um, the medical examiner's office is involved and you've, you're doing an autopsy, but you can't find family, um, or the, maybe there is family and the person's been estranged. What happens to the deceased at that point? So that's a problem. Uh, it can take a long time to find family, and, or there is no family, or the family doesn't want anything to do with the person that died. In those cases, I work with the welfare departments in the town where the person lived, and uh, welfare departments will pay a certain amount of money for a cremation in those cases. But it can take a long time for them to go through their processes also, because they can't automatically approve everybody they have to they have a checklist they have to go through too no long time talking potentially weeks and in longer not not hours or days correct weeks or months weeks sometimes or months. okay how about uh, on the complete opposite 
end of that spectrum, the, the person has been identified and has been claimed as in there are several family members fighting over custody of the remains. So there's another law that gives um, states what the hierarchy is of who has custody of the remains, and it starts with the spouse and then adult children and then parents, and then I think it goes on to you know siblings and goes through aunts and grandparents and all that kind of thing. Um, and it also says, you know, if there's three children, it's the majority of the children that would get to make the decision, not the oldest child, which a lot of people seem to believe. Mm -hmm. um, and we have had cases where people have fought about who's going to do what with the remains. And uh, we're in the Department of Justice, but we don't make that decision. They've, I've had a couple cases where the family's gone to court, you know, and, and the judge lets the court decide who gets custody. That's generally, we, if there's... Um Custody issues, we, we send the family to probate court, and the probate judge has a department that will really just deal with who has the right custody. Because what we've, we've often found is just because someone may be the spouse or the child, they may be estranged, and there may be someone else that actually has a, a closer relationship. The spouse may not have had relationships with, the, you know, with their husband or wife for, for decades, um, still legally married, and then maybe there's someone else on scene. So it, it really can get, and, and I, we know in dealing with the medical examiner's office, it can get quite stressful both for Yeah, it gets complicated. And, yeah. and there are there is a provision in the law if they're estranged and their relationship is characterized by hostility or indifference, um, the spouse, even though they're not legally separated, uh, the spouse is not uh, at the top of the list for custody. There's also, related to that, there's also a law that says if, if the legal next of kin um, is uncooperative after three days, they would actually lose um, custody and the ability to make arrangements. We will often use that when we have families that are somewhat dysfunctional, fighting, and the next of kin won't come in, and we'll say, you know, there is a law that says, unfortunately, if you don't come forward and, and start making some decisions, you're going to lose that ability, and it's going to go to your aunt or it's going to go to some other family member. So. Yeah, Whoever's it goes to the next, next person in line. Um, are you, do you ever have to be the person who, once the body is identified um, and a next of kin is, is established, are you ever the one who has to call that person and tell them your loved one has passed? Not usually. Uh, we work with the police a lot, and when we get notified of deaths, it's by the police. So, uh, and we don't have an ADME in every town like the local police do. So, by the time we get there, they're already looking for next of kin. And if uh, the next of kin is in a you know another town or another part of the state or even out of state, they usually call the police in the town uh, where that person lives and sends the local police at that place uh, mm -hmm. to notify the family. Have you ever been the person to have notified by accident? It's happened to me in the past. Uh, no. <laughs> we have had cases where the bodies, you know, we know who the person is, but we're looking for uh, relatives, and the police haven't come up with anything. And, and then I start looking, and I have had a couple cases where I've sent out letters, um, you know, or on a website I sent something to uh, someone because I couldn't find a phone number or address, but... She had a website, uh, and it was her relative, so I sent her a message that way. Um, I sent out a letter to somebody because I found an obituary, and uh, the person lived out of state, and I could find one of the relatives. It wasn't the closest, but just on the obituary, I could find their address, but I couldn't find any phone numbers, so I sent the letter, and then they notified you know, the person's brother who called me. So a lot of time and effort can go into just finding somebody. Yeah, finding relatives, wow. yeah. Okay, we got a, we got a couple questions um, 
couple emails about this, Peggy, who didn't specify where she's from. Do you allow interns or trainees or even the general public to come in to observe autopsies? We had a couple people that were interested in yeah no no to the general public we do have a training program we have pathology residents from dartmouth that come in uh to learn autopsy skills and also medical students and pa students and i do have interns uh and we have um right now i have some uh fitchburg nursing students that are getting masters in forensics that come in and and they do view autopsies and college interns um they, and they can, well, we have an intern program, so, and we only have so many spots, but if um, they have to have some kind of, you know, career track where they're heading into the medical field uh, or criminal justice uh, to be interns. But um, we also have high school interns, but they do not view autopsies. Okay. Now, with so many people learning about autopsies, are all of them going to be qualified with their line of work to be medical examiners? No, uh, no, most of them are not going to be uh, forensic pathologists, but they are learning a lot about anatomy and disease processes. And now, what type of education w is required to become a medical examiner or ADME? So for the ADME, and those are our scene investigators, and every jurisdiction does this differently. In New Hampshire, we have jurisdiction over the whole state, but all of our ADMEs have medical backgrounds, so they're either paramedics, uh, PAs, physician assistants, or RNs, and then we train them. Uh, we put on a training course, and they have to view 20 autopsies uh, with one of our um, pathologists, and they have to go to 20 scenes and work with uh, one of our experienced scene investigators. So with New Hampshire bordering three states, and I don't know if this has ever happened, if someone actually were passed away, in New Hampshire, but was actually brought over state lines by the family for whatever reason, would that, would that the jurisdiction be the New Hampshire medical examiner or the medical examiner in that well, state? Well, it's, it's where the person died. Where so they if died. they died in New Hampshire, then it's our case. And um, we get a lot of uh, Vermont cases that die at Dartmouth. So the person had an accident in Vermont, and they get transpor transported over the border to uh, DHMC, Dartmouth, um, and they die there. So it's the Vermont police that would investigate, but it would be our office, office. our medical examiner's office. And the same if there's an event in New Hampshire and somebody gets uh, transferred to a hospital over the border or even flown to Boston. Those are New Hampshire law enforcement cases, but it would be the out-of-state medical examiner's office that deals with it. One of the things people don't realize is that before, um, before a funeral home can have the cremation take place, the state medical examiner must come in and authorize or allow the cremation and, and pay the state a fee. What's the, what's the sort of the, the, the law, the ruling, the rationale around the state medical? Because the doctor's already signed the death certificate. The person's already been pronounced. In most cases, we know the cause of death. Do you any idea why the, the state would be Well, I think, uh, you know, once cremation happens, the body's gone. And if any issues come up later, uh, it's too late. So... We go and look at the body. We don't do the whole head-to-toe uh, exam, but you know we look and see if there are any obvious injuries. Uh, and we look at the death certificate. And there are a lot of deaths that should be reported by law to us, but kind of fall through the cracks. Frequently, we see elderly people with fractured hips, 
And um, if it's, you know, traumatic, if it's from a fall, that makes the manor accident. Uh, and a doctor will fill out the death certificate and put, um, you know, everything about the fractured hip and the injury section and then check off uh, manor natural. But it's, it's not natural. So the cremation check is, you know, a way to make sure it's not a death that should have been reported to us uh, that gets cremated before we get to see it. And, and also to properly certify the death certificate. Thank you. Now that's something that, um, you know, we've gone through the process of getting the death certificate signed by the doctor. We've called the ADME to come in and clear the cremation. And then you find one of these red flags. Um, that can hold up the process, right? Because you need to do a little investigation there. Yes, it can. And it depends what the situation is. In um, one case uh, a few years ago, it was. Uh, it turned out it was a homicide. It was a remote injury. Uh, the woman was injured years before. I think it was about 14 years early, earlier, and died from complications from that. She never recovered. Um, and it doesn't matter what the time interval is. It still makes the manor homicide. So she ended up coming in for autopsy, and they brought new charges against the person that had attacked her. Uh, in other cases, it's really just getting some information. Uh, you know, the medical record. And uh, that can get cleared up pretty quickly. Uh, we've only scratched the surface on the medical examiner. Uh, we appreciate your time coming in. Great, uh, great conversation. Thank you for joining us on another informative episode of Dying to Talk. I definitely learned a lot. If our listeners have any questions about funerals or cremations, either in New Hampshire or Vermont, I'm happy to answer them. Just email me at buddy at finef.net. That's buddy at p-h-a-n-e-u-f.net. Or call me on my direct line at 603-625-5778. Our contact information is in the show notes of this episode, too. 